This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, it seems we have our work cut out for us today. A large pile of material lays about us like the snow accumulation we've been seeing in the Sierra this year. We don't aspire to be a current event show, but there's so many current events raging around us that we're just going to have to jump in. I think I'd like to start with something I made passing mention of a while back, which is that evidently Americans are on track to eat the most eggs they've eaten in nearly a half century. The current number stands at 279 eggs per year per person. Now, something around four decades ago, when yours truly was heading in the direction of going into medicine, fat and cholesterol were public enemies number one and two, I guess. As part of medicine's battle against lipids, we were told we should not eat more than three eggs a week because of their cholesterol. Well, I have to confess, I... I never really bought into it. And according to the Washington Post, the newest edition of the Dietary Guidelines for Americans contains a rather striking change to previous years. It dropped a restriction on dietary cholesterol, a limit that had defined public health messaging for the last 40 years. The new guidelines track the changing views of many nutritionists who now believe that eating cholesterol-laden foods may not significantly affect the cholesterol levels of healthy adults or increase their risk of heart disease. So, on behalf of medical science, I would like to apologize to all of you, dear listeners. It seems you're free to eat all the eggs you want, and we were full of it. We have more to say about that at some future time. But in other egg-related stories, we would note that we hope that yesterday, the vernal equinox, you did not spend time trying to balance an egg on its end. To quote from Marilyn Vos Savant's column in Parade Magazine, which we frankly can't resist, a reader said, A few years ago I was told you can balance an egg on end during the spring and fall equinoxes. I've enjoyed doing it ever since, but why does it only work at those times? Said Marilyn, Contrary to this common belief, one can balance an egg on end at any time during the year with equal effort, but you'll need considerable patience. Have some fun and give it a try today, readers. Make it a family competition. Or time yourself. You'll need a stable surface such as a dining room table. Then again, try on the equinoxes. You'll see that it won't be any easier. About 15 years ago, somebody posed the question to me of why it was you could balance an egg on the equinox. (laughs) My response was, what in the hell are you talking about? Anyway, we don't know how these things get started. We don't know how that thing got started, but follow Marilyn's advice, and I think you'll see that, yes, there's nothing special about the equinox. In fact, if you're one of the people that tried it yesterday, try it again today to find out it's not any more difficult. Yours truly attended a very stimulating dinner party over this past weekend, and I was really struck by a couple of things. This gathering of very bright people seemed resigned to the possibility that Donald Trump would be re-elected in 2020. I did not share that pessimistic view. They were also appalled at what the tech industry is doing to the Bay Area, a topic we will delve into shortly. 
During dinner, someone mentioned the factoid that the late dictator of North Korea, Kim Jong-il, the father of the current dictator, Kim Jong-un, was reported by the Korean press agency to have had 11 holes in one the first time he played an 18-hole round of golf. Here's an item that popped up from our archives. Apparently, Kim Jong-un, back in 2007, was the world's leading buyer of Hennessy Cognac. That's according to a congressional intelligence report. The dictator evidently spends up to $720,000 a year on Hennessy. This in a country that has issues with starvation. I think it's worth mentioning that his son, the current dictator of North Korea, is a man that our president, Donald Trump, has fallen in love with. It's sad to contemplate that the North Korean dictatorship and the American presidency seem to likewise share some distortions of reality. When Donald Trump was asked if he'd spoken with Kim about the case of Otto Warmbier, the American college student who died after 17 months in North Korean custody, Trump said he tells me he didn't know about it, and I will take him at his word. Yes, like all of you, we are... uh, waiting anxiously what's going to come of the Mueller report and the various investigations into, well, I guess you'd have to say corruption surrounding Donald Trump. It has never struck us as particularly likely that Trump is going to weather this storm without much incident. But as one of my fellow diners pointed out on Sunday, Donald Trump has a 90% approval rating among Republicans. That's not his base, that's Republicans. Well, I think I would just compare our situation as passive observers to what Golda Meir once said about old age, which was, it was like being aboard an aircraft flying in bad weather. Once you're aboard, there's nothing much you can do. Anyway, perhaps you're amused by this, uh, this scandal, which has arisen about people spending large sums of money to get their children into elite schools. The current Justice Department investigation seems to be focused on, uh, I don't know, television stars and Californians. Now, personally, I have no sympathy whatsoever for jackasses who do this, of of, of helicopter parents on steroids. But I did note that um, some of the people cited were Bay Area folks. Now, does anyone imagine that non-Bay Area people such as the Trumps or the Bushes have not played this game? George W. Bush went to Yale. Then he went to then he got an MBA from Harvard. Despite that fact, apparently nobody would hire him afterwards. This is nothing new, ladies and gentlemen. Something like seven percent of the admissions to Ivy League universities go to the children of alumni. And to a significant degree, attending these elite universities is like attending a country club. You go there because of who you get to rub shoulders with. One thing about this, it's certain to take some of the wind out of the sails of those who have criticized affirmative action for, for, for deviating from the meritocracy that college admissions should represent. Let us do some follow-up. We made fun a few weeks back of our new governor, Gavin Newsom, in California's statement that he was not in favor of Jerry Brown's twin tunnels to divert Delta water to Southern California. As Newsom said in his State of the State address, let me be direct about where I stand. I do not support the twin tunnels, but we can build on the important work that's already been done. And that's why I do support a single tunnel. 
Writing at the time, Paul Rogers noted that Newsom did not explain what size the one tunnel would be, or its configuration, or its cost, noting that any significant changes to the original plan are likely to require the state to draw up a new environmental impact statement, which could take years. Personally, I don't think we need to worry too much about that. I don't expect any significant uh, change from the original plan, even if you use one tunnel instead of two tunnels. And for more on this fiasco, I'd like to go to the News and Review, the Sacramento paper we are very fond of. The piece by Scott Thomas Anderson is worth quoting from. Anderson notes that attorneys for the Department of Water Resources and California counties can agree that downsizing California's so-called water fix still calls for massive intakes and some industrial construction zones along the Sacramento River. Anderson reported on the travails of Donus Waitley, who woke up one night and realized that it was all happening again. Waitley was born in Port Chicago on Susun Bay. Her family worked the land there for years and noted that Port Chicago had quaint cottages and Victorian homes along the water as late as 1965, but then the federal government decided Port Chicago could no longer exist because it needed to add a secured riverfront to the Concord Naval Weapons Station. The town's families were informed the government was starting an official condemnation process on their lands, and by 1969, naval authorities had demolished nearly every trace of Port Chicago. This was an example of eminent domain. Deja vu came in 2016 when the California Department of Water Resources decided it wanted to take control of 500 acres of land Whaley and other families owned on Winter Island in the Central Delta. The family said they didn't want to sell, but eventually received a letter from the state indicating they'd face eminent domain if they didn't. So they did. Now, the Whaley's have a thriving business in the Delta town of Hood, which sits right in the crosshairs of California's so-called water fix, surrounded on all sides by properties that may be targeted for eminent domain seizures to make way for three 1,000-foot-long steel and concrete pumping intakes along the Sacramento River. According to attorneys representing Delta counties, the recent announcement by Gavin Newsom that he favors a one-tunnel conveyance system does nothing to eliminate the threat of government seizures. Whaley was reported as saying it's an insidious process when the government wants to take your land and it doesn't just happen overnight. I feel it's something you can never get back. They take what your family worked for, what they earned, what they built. They take what your family thought it would have for generations. It's heartbreaking. It changes the lives of everyone. Anderson notes that when the governor in his February 12th State of the State address said he didn't support the water fix as a two-tunnel behemoth, he got a loud burst of applause. But in the next breath, when Newsom added he supported a one-tunnel version, no applause followed. Said attorney Tom Keeling, who represents four Delta counties in two separate lawsuits against the Department of Water Resources, no matter if it's one tunnel or two, the state of California is going to need right-of-way on some properties and to fully acquire other related interests. It would be an intense need for private property. Project design documents for the DWR's environmental impact report show that not only will any tunnel system need massive pumping intakes, but to build them, the state will also have to acquire additional acreage for construction yards and geotechnical exploration zones. DWR's concept map suggests the department would need to take control of the majority of land along a six-mile stretch of the river's east bank. Article quotes OSHA 
Maserv, an attorney who's coordinating 17 different lawsuits against the Department of Water Resources under the California Environmental Quality Act, says the department's on tenuous legal ground if it doesn't restart its environmental impact report and reporting process from scratch. Maserv said whether or not it's one tunnel or two, the impacts on the environment would still be enormous. Anyway, looks like this disgusting water grab is going to go forward under Gavin Newsom. And if any of you out there believe that the Delta environment is going to be improved by removing more water from it, which is what the water fix claims it's going to do, please contact us at info at radioparallax.com. We would like to negotiate over selling you some bridges. You know, we do want to throw Governor Newsom a bone in that uh, he is opposed to the expansion of California's private prison system. In his inaugural address, he promised to end the outrage that is private prisons. California currently has more than 4,000 inmates in private facilities, about half in state and the other half in Arizona. But I think I do want to say another word or two about uh, Gavin Newsom's moratorium on the death penalty. And in this case, I'm going to let Dan Walters do the talking. Said Walters, Gavin Newsom is fond of making grandiloquent, headline-grabbing gestures couched in moralistic terms. His tendency first surfaced in 2004 when, as the newly elected mayor of San Francisco, he directed officials to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples in defiance of a state law passed by California voters just a few years earlier. Newsom told an interviewer last year, I had no right to do this. We didn't have the formal authority, but we tried to exercise our moral authority and challenge the laws. Said Walters, although his action was quickly slapped down by the courts, it made him a national political figure. Last week, Newsom did it again, ordering reprieves for the more than 700 inhabitants of California's death row, and in effect launching a campaign to persuade California voters to overturn capital punishment. Like the same-sex decree 15 years earlier, it was orchestrated for maximum media attention, including videos posted on Twitter and photographs of San Quentin's capital punishment chamber being dismantled. Once again, Newsom is defying the demonstrated will of California voters, who twice in this decade rejected ballot measures to end the death penalty. Although his opposition to capital punishment was no secret, Newsom on several occasions had pledged to honor those two votes. In 2016, interview with the Modesto Bee's editorial board, Newsom said he would be accountable to the will of the voters of elected governor. I would not get my personal opinions in the way of the public's right to make a determination of where they want to take us, said Walters. So last week's action was definitely a flip-flop. He justified it by saying, the will of the voters is also entrusted in me on the basis of my constitutional right as governor to grant a reprieve to condemned prisoners. Walters notes that despite its being a very blue state, California voters twice declared their support for capital punishment. It's somewhat unseemly for a governor to, in effect, thumb his nose at them, especially after pledging not to. Walters closed by saying his gay marriage gesture in 2004 turned out to be a political plus, especially after the U.S. Supreme Court agreed. Morality aside, this is another political gamble. You know, when Gavin Newsom did that back in 2004, we were somewhat critical. John Kerry was in a tight political race for the presidency with George W. Bush. And it seems that in terms of the national political electorate and its likely response to Gavin Newsom's actions, which he admitted I had no right to do, a couple of purple states at least might have swung a little bit to the red. We think that's exactly what happened. 
and doubt very seriously that Gavin Newsom's actions had any ultimate impact on the Supreme Court decision that did legalize gay marriage across the country. Sure made Gavin look good in California, though, didn't it? Anybody think that was worth four more years of George W. Bush? Let's see if we can't spend the rest of this segment talking about Silicon Valley. When it comes to Silicon Valley, I have to admit that some years back, I really held high hopes for what would come out of this uh, hothouse. It did seem to me that if you got together a lot of progressive, bright, young people and had a lot of new ways to attack the problems of the world, good things would come of it. But of late, we have come to see that uh, Frankenstein's monster has evidently been spawned from Silicon Valley. Aided by the government, these tech people in Silicon Valley have built giant monopolies intruding in every corner of our life, showing power the likes of which the world has never seen before. The promise of what new technology could accomplish, and and does accomplish, our, our lives are all in some ways improved by this tech, there's no doubt about that. What we've seen of late is that these mega corporations, the, this oligopoly, if, they're, if not out-and-out out monopolies of certain areas, have sort of joined forces with Wall Street. It cracks me up when I read the business section of the paper to note that stock prices feature prominently in all the news stories. And I can think of no better example of how things have gone haywire than to cite the documentary which is currently appearing on HBO, which I recommend to you very highly, dear listener. Its title was The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, and it tells the story of Elizabeth Holmes, Oscar-winning and previous radio parallax appearing. Director Alex Gibney captured how the passion of the young founder of Theranos won over high-profile investors who bought the claim that her Silicon Valley startup had developed a breakthrough in blood testing that would soon revolutionize medicine. Good press and, and a startling array of people who endorsed uh, the endeavor, like Henry Kissinger, George Schultz, General Mattis, etc., saw her company's value expanded to $9 billion on Wall Street, at least before all of her puffery began to unravel. What's really fascinating in this documentary is to see the efforts that were made to silence critics, critics who knew that this whole thing was a con. People like George Schultz's grandson, as a matter of fact, who went to work for the company because he believed in the message that was being put out by Elizabeth Holmes. When guys like David Boyce, the attorney that was supposedly represented Al Gore in 2000, I say supposedly because I thought I did a pretty crappy job, nevertheless, one of the most respected attorneys in the country, when he is threatening your whistleblower status. Well, things have gone haywire. In this case, the bad guys, in, in this case, Elizabeth Holmes and uh, some of her top executives, well, they lost. Although, oddly enough, if you look up what her current status is, you will find that the case is still moving through the courts. Despite authoring one of the great business cons of the last decade, Elizabeth Holmes is not behind bars. The motto in Silicon Valley has been move fast and break things. But as they pointed out in the documentary, when human lives are involved, that's probably not a good policy. Anyway, as a physician, I, I always questioned the idea that Elizabeth Holmes was putting forward, that if we can put cheap lab results in the hands of every single individual, why well, their health is bound to get better. People did point out in Alex Gibney's documentary that 
In fact, you probably do need a physician at some level to step in and tell you what these lab results mean because if you try to figure it out by going on to Google, well, bad things are just about bound to ensue. Neophytes studying medicine, such as all of us back in the early days of medical school, will look up this or that symptom we have and, of course, determine that we have a fatal disease, even when 999 times out of 1,000, we don't. Anyway, The Economist reports in its current edition that uh, moves are afoot to change how the tech giants are rampaging across the country. Note of the magazine, anniversaries are often happy occasions, but not this one. March 17th marks a year since the New York Times and The Observer published exposés about how Facebook enabled the personal data of tens of millions of Facebook users to leak to an outside political firm, Cambridge Analytica. The resulting scandal has plagued the social networking firm and provided skepticism among politicians and consumers that big tech firms can be trusted to police themselves. Many Republicans and Democrats who share little in common ideologically agree that the tech giants need to be reined in. Elizabeth Warren, a senator trying to become the Democratic nominee for president, recently suggested breaking up big tech companies, including Facebook, Google, and Amazon, and unwinding some of their previously allowed mergers, such as Facebook's purchase of the apps Instagram and WhatsApp. She has declared that big tech firms have too much power over our economy, our society, and our democracy. Meanwhile, Ted Cruz, a Republican senator from Texas, added this is the first time he had agreed with Ms. Warren about anything. The Economist points out that, as if to underscore her concern, Facebook temporarily blocked some of Elizabeth Warren's anti-tech advertisements from appearing on the social network, reportedly because the trademark issues with Facebook's logo needed to be resolved. Uh, anyway, for more, uh, more on the, the discussion of how the tech industry may need to be broken up, we would refer you back to our discussion of what Tim Wu had to say three weeks ago on this program. Well, Tim Wu wasn't speaking to us directly, although we hope he will in the future, but our, our quotes of what he had to say at the Commonwealth Club. And speaking of Facebook, this horrific shooting that took place in New Zealand last week was something that was live-streamed onto Facebook. Facebook reportedly removed the video within an hour of the shooting, minutes supposedly after being alerted to it by New Zealand authorities. Facebook's Vice President for Global Policy, Monica Bickert, told the New Zealand Herald that the company's much-touted artificial intelligence technology, which the company says does not have enough data about previous shootings, did not detect the video. Yes, Facebook's AI was unable to recognize that a mass shooting was a problem. Anyway, this whole dark side to social media is something that needs to be addressed now. We find it hard to believe that Facebook has had to gather up 800 visually distinct videos, in quotes, related to the attack to a collaborative database of the Global Internet Forum to counter terrorism. I mean, how hard can it be to figure out that, you know, a, a video of shooting people is something you shouldn't allow to go forward? Anyway, poor Mark Zuckerberg. This may, this may put a crimp in his plans to become America's uh, next centa-billionaire. And yes, that's a term they're throwing out now in reference to Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. Gates apparently has now joined Bezos as being one of America's Santa billionaires, someone possessed of $100 billion personally. Writing about this, Bloomberg News notes that these two fortunes underscore a widening wealth gap in the U.S., 
where those with the most capital are accumulating riches the fastest. It's also a worldwide trend. Francis Bernard Arnault has an $86.2 billion fortune, equal to about 3% of France's economy. The net worth of Spain's Amarancio Ortega represents 5% of Spain's gross domestic product. And then there's Bidzina Ivanshvili, whose worth is about one-third that of the, Georgia's gross domestic product. The piece notes that the Gates and Bezos mega fortunes may not last long. Gates has donated more than $35 billion to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and said he intends to give away at least half of his wealth. Bezos, meanwhile, may be about to cede some of his fortune to a dip, for a different reason. He and his wife are divorcing. You know, back to Silicon Valley. Good friend of mine who has worked his whole life in Silicon Valley as a marketer had numerous conversations with me years ago about the Gini Index, which is a way of looking at different nations and deciding how concentrated the wealth was. He was very, very concerned about how the, there are various distortions that take place in a society when a small fraction of its populace controls an enormous section of its wealth. And yet, when we see the startling example of monopoly capitalism which is the Silicon Valley story of late, I noticed that he didn't have a word to say about it. If it's bad for a Spain or a France or a Peru, why is it not bad for Silicon Valley? What's the news we see coming out of the valley? Well, a lot of people are saying, you know, Lyft may have underestimated its valuation before the IPO, blah, blah, blah. I'm holding the Bay Area News Group business section in my hand as I read this. I guess they're anticipating raising a cool $20 billion or so dollars. You know, that's just great. But I'm wondering why it is. Before my trip to Morocco last June, and I contracted with Lyft for a ride into the airport, they left me high and dry. They then added insult to injury by charging me $5 for the missed pickup 12 hours later. I suppose some people would think, well, gee, I must have made an error and, 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 and signed up for a PM pickup instead of an AM pickup. But no, in this case, there's 0% possibility that that happened. So I don't know. Maybe they should pay more attention to the services they're delivering than how much they're going to make in their IPO. Just a thought. Anyway, we'll have some more things to say about the failures of tech in the second segment. But we should cite in closing one final misuse of tech, which was the rolling in of a video screen robot into a patient's room at Kaiser in Fremont last week, wherein a doctor, via his screen presence, informed the family and the patient that he was in pretty bad shape and might not make it. Family members say, well, we knew we were going to lose him. Our point is the delivery of the news, well, there was no compassion. You take a break shortly, but before we go, let's just note that in one other bit of tech concern, TheVerge.com notes that a Twitter user spotted a camera located just below the in-flight entertainment system on a Singapore Airlines flight, and others have found similar ones in American Airlines planes. Both airlines say the cameras were inactive and had been installed for future uses, such as hand gestures to control in-flight entertainment. We reported previously that Google added voice support to its Nest home security systems using microphones that users pointed out they had never disclosed in their device specs. Google said the microphones had not been activated, and shoot, they, they meant to tell people that. It wasn't supposed to be a secret. Anyway, let's pause for a deep breath here. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll try and lighten things up a little bit somewhat in our second segment. <laughs> 